to episode three of the Analysis Paralysis podcast. My name is Thomas, and that is officially the first time I've introduced myself. And today I am joined by RJ. Hello, great to be back. And Chris. Hey, happy to be here. Yes, I am happy to have both of you here. It has been far too long, if I have anything to say about it. Really happy with how the first deep dive went on Matainai. That's been getting a really good response. And it's cool to see people still apparently listening to it as I check kind of like the play stats and stuff like that. And to hear some of the discussion that's kind of come out of that since then. I'm excited to continue to highlight games more deeply and kind of dive in and offer up maybe something that is underserved, which is kind of deep diving analysis on various games, bringing in people that are incredibly experienced with various games and just kind of mining the depths of that with them and kind of playing host as far as that goes. Also, um, it's cool to hear possible collaborations for the future. I won't, uh, I won't spoil anything, but there's a, a, you know, at least one podcast that has soft reached out to me and it just kind of was the f first time that it happened, and that's kind of an exciting thing. So watch out for that in the future. I would love to collaborate with any and everyone who would want to, I don't know, talk with us and talk about games more deeply and stuff like that. But yeah, we are very, very excited to be here with you all. And why don't we just hop kind of right into the uh, games section, kind of what we've been playing. Um, I have been playing... A lot of PAX Renaissance. This is one of the uh, PAX games, as you might have uh, told by the title. For those who are unfamiliar, um, also from the family of games that includes PAX Premier, first and second edition, uh, PAX Porfiriana, PAX Viking, PAX Emancipation, uh, and PAX Transhumanity. That's that's the that's the yes. other one. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I've been having kind of a series of games of this recently with uh, specifically one of my coworkers. I'm fortunate enough to have uh, indoctrinated this person into playing this ridiculous game with me. And somehow they seem to enjoy it just as much, if not even more than I do. So there's often times where they're wanting to play the game and kind of reach out to me and like, hey, do you want to play Pax Ren? And it's like, Oh, I wasn't even thinking about that, but what? absolutely, Why yes, do you I do. Find these people. <laughs> I know it's it, it is fan it's fantasy land over here. The, the fact that I found like five different people who have willingly allowed me to teach them this game for roughly an hour is unbelievable. <laughs> actually, unbelievable. Like it was so funny because every time that it would happen, I would reach out to the discord and be like oh yeah i'm playing pax ren with a new buddy and everyone's yeah. like where do you find where do you find these people because i don't know about you guys but learning pax renaissance was one of the harder games i'd ever learned um probably probably to this date i think there's definitely some war games that if i do learn them in the future will probably challenge for that title um but i think still pax ren more than any other game was some of the like biggest hurdles to try and get into that game but man i'm so glad that i did 
Like, I don't know about you guys. Yeah, as for far sure. as you are, Jay, is yeah, 100%. Game, it, it, it was uh, like jarring to say the least. Like, I, I had to grind several games before I could even. I mean, it's it's different for everybody, but for me, it was an especially um, big struggle just to internalize the rules and to find like purpose in my actions. And I want to say it wasn't until like close to 10 games where I could finally find purpose in a, a, a decisive action. Like, okay, I know what I'm aiming for with this. And that just came with re repeat play and seeing the outcomes of my decisions. But it took a long time. I don't know. What what, what are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I well, <laughs> you oh, have yeah, unique... Right. You, RJ, have unique insight into my oh, thoughts. That's right. yeah. You taught me the game, and I have extremely limited experience with it. Just those two plays we did at DomeCon together. And I, you know, I don't want to attribute too much meaning into my very brief like hour with the game spent playing it. But yeah, I have not cleared the learning curve just yet. I I am still dumbfounded that I won those two games um, because just like you said, I I have not connected the meaning of my actions to the desired outcome I was trying to achieve. It, th those victories straight up fell into my lap and I was just kind of along for the ride. Well, you know, give yourself some credit, man, because you at least saw the outs were there, right? Even though you didn't know how you got there you saw the outs were there and that's a that's a big part of that game like finding that little minuscule chance of getting an out when you're playing with extremely alert players it's very very hard like you have to put them between a rock and a hard place to to get that win so you know kudos to that at, at the very least well that's sort of the thing is you're analyzing this kind of communal not communal puzzle in the sense that I think that's used sometimes nowadays with some of these, uh, you know, heads down euros, but like, uh, it's the tableau of cards that every player has. And then also the market gives you the, and then the map that that's your three kind of triune board board state. And so you're looking at this and you're just you're seeing like what one shots are on the market what's going to allow me to affect things what's in my tableau can i do things without buying cards this turn and gain empires or gain republics or you know angle towards a certain victory condition so i love every turn this opportunity to to analyze that right in the name of this podcast there's definitely some analysis paralysis that can come into play Yet, I don't know. It also is, is limited because you're you're very limited in the amount of actions you can take. You get two actions per turn. So there's only so much you can do. And a lot of it is just setting yourself up for the next turn. Um, and then that turn, when it doesn't end up being the turn, setting yourself up for the next turn and for the next turn. And the tricky part is at the beginning of the game, there's no way to win mm -hmm. because none of the four victory conditions are in play. Right, right. The players have to buy specific cards that are in the market that then allow them to trigger a victory condition, not declare it saying, hey, I've won, but make it active. And it doesn't just make it active for them, it makes it active for all players. And so there's even a ton of consideration in that. Sometimes you just buy one of those comment cards, which is the card that allows you to do that, just to deny a player a, a clear victory on their next mm -hmm. turn because they mm -hmm. would have exactly what they need to both buy that card and then declare victory. 
but the, that makes it so hard, especially as a new player, because you're you begin the game and you're like, I don't. How do I? What matters? Exactly. Like what when matters? You're playing, yeah. Well, yeah. When you when you're playing uh, <laughs> any other game, really, it's like get points. Okay, this gets me four points. This gets me seven. I'm gonna do the thing that gets me seven. Like you know, and so there's not a, nearly as much opacity in something like that. Maybe there's opacity in how to, still how to do well, but you still like you know what you can do to at least get towards victory. But the thing with PAX Renaissance and with some of the other PAX games as well is you can be giving a whole lot of effort towards something that will not matter at all. And that is a really tough thing to get used to. Mm-hmm. But the cool part is like, even as you're playing, like as the game, if the game goes longer because those comets are seated randomly into the deck, it it's becoming more and more likely that a winner will just kind of happen. Right. Uh, in one of the four different ways that you can win this game. Right. Um, so that's kind of the cool part too, is there's kind of like that hard timer because at some point people have amassed enough power in their tableaus, enough board presence, you know, enough whatever that removing them from that position is incredibly difficult. Yes, for sure. After a point, one person just gets too big and you've done everything you could to stave them off, but you know, they just find a way to squeak through. Uh, and it, of course, it could go the opposite way where y- you overextend and le- it leaves you open to some kind of dramatic shift in the game state. They could steal your empire. They could do this or that. Uh, it's just, it seems, it's it's almost insane to me how well-crafted this game is. It's 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 crazy. Uh, you know, I don't know. Spoilers, it's, it's in my top 10. I love this game tremendously. And it's just so so very rich. Like I don't know, and I know Chris, you have limited experience, very limited experience. Oh, but have you had a chance to wait? Do you own the game, Chris? By any chance? I do not own the game. Okay, so that kind of ex- that might explain why you're not able to table it. But like, it really just shines the more plays you get through. Like it. Oh yeah, man. I I'm fully aware that I have barely scratched the surface on this game. So many people whose opinions I respect when it comes to uh, board game analysis, they rave about the game. So there's clearly a lot there to mine and appreciate. I just I haven't been able to uh, peer through the opacity to get there just yet, and I know it would take a, at least a handful more plays to start to appreciate what is there the lovely part about the game too is it's so good at two players i've actually never played it at three i would love to and in fact i think i could even possibly even prefer that count i think it's very possible even though in some of the communities i'm in it's almost like this de facto opinion that two player is the best when in reality like the wider community actually views three player as the best um but still at two player it's it's excellent and What's really nice is most games are not going to go over an hour at two players. No. Sometimes no, when Chris they're going to go 30 minutes. Yeah. I think Chris said he played for an hour. That's two games. <laughs> he, right. he, played, he played two games, and you feel like yeah. you played so much more. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> than just 20 it minutes. Just packs. That was a dense hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, the density, the, the information and decision density per hour I, of that game is maybe – it's unrivaled for me. At least in terms of like modern gaming, I guess you could argue mm-hmm. maybe something like Go would maybe give it a run for its money mm-hmm. or something like that. But um, for me too, one, one thing, 
so this is probably i probably have like 20 or so plays under my belt now and nice. uh, all of them at two player and six of them within the past month so it's very fresh in my mind but something i'm really starting to appreciate is i i, I used to think that the board state was too fragile i thought that everything was so tenuous it felt like oh i'm gaining this empire and it's so weak and so it's so vulnerable and so then like you have this kind of zugzwang or whatever where you don't want to make a move because it's just going to put you in the weakened position so that the other mm-hmm. player swoops in and takes your hard work um but what i've realized is like the opportunities to take empires are actually far more limited than one would think when you're first starting out because so often you're going to be limited by the amount of money that you have so often you're going to be limited by the tableau actions that you have mm-hmm. so often you're going to be limited by what's in the market right yep and then there's also even under there's considerations underneath that which are like i don't want to pay to this card because it's going to possibly give more money to the player who then buys that card or i don't want to pay to this market because there's two markets because it's going to enrich the 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 trade trade fair which is the way of kind of getting uh money in that game Mm -hmm. and so you have even like you have these secondary and tertiary considerations that will often dissuade and disincentivize you from purchasing certain things that may very well allow you to get someone's empire that's in their tableau and so I've actually, as I've played, I've realized like, oh, if I analyze this market properly, you know, given a certain market, I can buy better cards than other cards to give myself a stronger hold on what I then come to possess. And so that's been really cool to realize. And also just like the way that you gain money in this game primarily is by having these trade concessions on borders of cards. Mm -hmm. And so then as this kind of trade fair commences, as it passes along these trade routes, it come passes over your pieces and if it passes over one of your pieces you you get a florin which is one kind of money in the game and so those become so important right your first question is how am i going to establish concessions on the trade route so that i can make sure i have money in this game because Mm -hmm. money is power and you know money is cards and cards are power yeah and so something you have to learn in this game is how can you put concessions out and keep them safe and that's once again, falls in line with what I was just talking about, which is where you kind of are analyzing the market and you're realizing like, oh, there's very safe, there can be very kind of safe bets in terms of where I put these if I look at the market properly and I and I understand these things. But that really goes into, you got to play this game. First of all, you need to play this game at, at least like five or six times before you even have even a lick of an idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, you need to play this game i'm saying you this is just to anyone you need to play this game no you need to play this game period (laughs) several times several times in quick succession i'm talking like the first time you play this game play it again within the next week or you're gonna forget what you like what you learned and then after that play it again within the next two weeks and then like play it again within the next month and then i found for some reason for me at least like if i played it those few times in quick succession each time I play it in a slightly less quick succession, I lock it in for a little bit longer. And so like right now I could probably go, you know, four or five months and still have pretty much all the heuristics that I've learned. I wouldn't be as sharp with like card memorization, but I would, I would have a better idea of like what the arc of a game is and what strat strategically is wise and stuff like that. But that's my biggest recommendation to anyone trying to learn this game is you need to play it often 
because it's just really hard to lock in a lot of those concepts. But that's once again where the playtime just comes into stark relief and it makes itself that much more tantalizing, which is that you can get plays of this in in like 30 minutes to 45 minutes at two players. And so even if one, even if you have one game night with someone who's willing to learn this game with you, you can probably play it three times that night, you know, if you really wanted to. Absolutely. So, yeah, I have nothing but good things to say about this game. I love it. It's also a top game for me, and it will undoubtedly make more appearances on the show for sure. Nice. But, and you've been playing yeah, first anyway. edition, right, Thomas? Yes, that is a yes. great question. Um, oh, I have I been haven't playing first edition. Okay. I Just was more wondering. staunchly in. I was more staunchly in one E camp, like a month ago, but then. I played a little bit on TTS, and the mod on there is 2E, at least the really good one, mm -hmm. scripting and stuff. And man, it's just so nice to have the splayable tableau. I play this often in limited space, and with one first edition, you can't really splay the cards. You have to; mm -hmm. they each have to be disparate and in their own space. And the tableaus get ridiculous in this game sometimes mm -hmm. with that happening. And so, what 2E did is it made it to where every card has a vertical banner instead of a horizontal one. And so you're able to kind of splay the cards where you only need the banner's worth of information on each card. And man, I'd, I'm probably going to pick it up just on that basis. And also, oh, okay, I'm, a, I'm in talks with uh, doing a Pax Ren deep dive, and one of those individuals who's by far an expert on this game has firmly commit, you know, uh, transitioned over to 2e and finds most of the differences innocuous um and i trust i trust that so like I, I think i'll probably get a 2e copy the only thing i don't love about it is the box size i mean the 1e box size is just so nice you mm -hmm. have this tiny little box with you you can take it anywhere the 2e box is more akin to your normal like tick to right size box ish and that's just the game is so small. It can be so small. And that's that's what's so enticing is like the decision per playtime and square inch on the shelf ratio is just yeah, off the chart. That's fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Nice. Yeah. So, RJ, why don't you uh, tell us about uh, some Napoleon's Triumph? Yes. Why don't I? <laughs> so, this is uh, my game of choice that I've been digging into of late. Uh, I have three plays under my belt, which is, that's like, I don't know, 10 to 12 hours of, of gameplay, I, I want to say. Leisurely gameplay, you know, we're not trying to rush it. So a game is like three to four hours. Um, and so for those who who don't really know or haven't heard of it, um, which is very likely because it's not in print anymore, Napoleon's Triumph is a block war game that models the Battle of Austerlitz. Uh, between Napoleon of France, right, uh, against the Allies, which consist of Russia and Austria. So you have Napoleon's blue, you have the Allies as red. And like a war game, you will you'll get rewarded for uh, eliminating the enemy units. So one way to win is to reduce the enemy's morale to zero, and you reduce morale by killing enemy units, right? And they're represented by these blocks on the board. The other way to win is to control key objectives at the end of a certain number of rounds. So there's two modes to the game. You can play the long game or the short game. And I think it's like eight or nine rounds. I, I don't know. We've never gone to the full round mark before getting morale down. But 
then you double that number of rounds because it's either one day or two days, right? So none of this sounds atypical, probably, to anyone who's played any sort of war game. Uh, even in the case of a block war game, you've seen things like Command and Colors or uh, others in that in that genre. Uh, what's the other one? Hammer of the Scots, Sekigahara. Sekigahara, right? yeah. Yep, um, where you don't know. it's rep Fog of War is represented by hidden block strength. But what makes man I, I could i could go on all day <laughs> singing my praises about napoleon's triumph like this this game really blew me away like it it i was awestruck after my first play um and that was just me trying to like discover what the heck was going on and then the second play when i started to apply what i learned i, I was even more impressed and then in the third play like when i finally got a good sense of like how to pull some threads in the game Man, it just got it just got better and better. And so I guess I'll just talk mainly talk about why I think this game stands out, why I think this game sort of deserves attention. And I think um a lot of Napoleon Triumph's design is reflected in the upcoming revision of an original game. And so I didn't even talk about the designer, shame on me. So Bowen Simmons designed this game. Uh and they originally it, it was sort of like a successor to Bonaparte at Marengo. And so they tweaked the design a little bit uh, to become Napoleon's Triumph. And what they're planning on doing is implementing a similar design for Napoleon's Triumph back into Bonaparte at Marengo, which they're now calling Triumph or Triumph at Marengo. So if you like what you hear when I talk about Napoleon's Triumph, definitely look at that upcoming uh, sequel, which will be, which should be widely available. So, so, what makes this stand out? Uh, I think what makes this stand out is how intricate the combat system is, without being overly complicated. Um, and so, it what what I what I mean by that is this: a lot of things go into declaring a combat action, but everything is literally just a move. Like all the commands you possibly could possibly do is a move action. You move into the next space. You move your units into empty spaces whatever but if you choose to move into an enemy space it's it's going to initiate a fight right but the innovation here that i don't think i've seen anywhere else um but it's possible there it's been in other games is when you declare an attack uh well let me ref let me let me backtrack the spaces on the board are like these polygons they're called locales so you just imagine a bunch of polygons on the board delineated that that way and when you indicate you're going to attack an enemy's locale you pick one side of the polygon, which are called approaches, and you say, I'm attacking this approach. You don't say with who, you don't say where from, you don't say what you're targeting, you don't say the strength that you're, you just say, I'm attacking this approach. And what that means with, with respect to the movement rules of the game is you can set up different units uh, angled for attacking that approach. So there's a defined, um, let's say, range for attacking in the game not to get too complicated there is a defined range for people being able to attack so you can set it up where multiple units can attack a single approach and then you could say okay then the defender has to say are they going to commit to defend and if they don't they have to retreat so it's really unappealing to just say i'm not going to defend when it looks like you know you have like a couple of units set up to attack you like oh no i'm not going to back down so they defend right what you can then do as the attacker, if they commit units, is you can say, okay, that was actually a feint. And I'm going to show you which units can feint. And by the 
the rules of the game, they can legally move to the attack, but they're actually going to faint. And what that means, like what what Bowen, Bowen Simmons is trying to do, is sort of model the the warfare that was going on in the Battle of Austerlitz. And this was kind of like Napoleon's style, actually. He was known to be this kind of hit and run, like faint maneuvers kind of guy. Or he would make it look like he's attacking and then he'd run away. But the enemy would commit to that attack and leave their main force sort of more exposed. So if you attack from one range and you faint, the rules of the game say you have to commit units to that approach. And when units are on an approach, they can't defend other approaches. So you might see where I'm going here, right? If you set up flanking positions around a unit, you can make them like sort of commit units elsewhere before you actually send in your real force and then carry out your attack. So that fainting system, that approach and de declaration, like that drives the whole game and it makes it this, this crazy like positional game where it doesn't matter how big your force is. It, it it straight up doesn't matter. Like there's troop limitations for how you can attack. So you can send like a giant 10 size force, but like two people, two two blocks of those might be fighting um, just by virtue of the design of the system because they're trying to uh, sort of describe the, the cumbersome nature of sending armies out, but it's all really, really elegant. And so you have this 10 force army that could be whittled away by, you know, one or two pieces attacking from this or that corner. And it's just like, like my mind was blown and it was funny in my first game i'm sorry I'm, I'm i know i'm taking this over but you can tell how excited i am about this game in my first game i would i approached it like it was a what i played before or i would like send this huge army and like okay like these the millions of blocks are gonna definitely destroy you and then i only ended up fighting with like three of them because of the size of the approach because of the narrowness of the terrain what have you and i'm like well, that actually didn't work. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. And in fact, that ten, that giant army lost because my opponent, you know, pulled pulled at its edges and 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 got a better angle of attack. And I'm like, okay, this is it. This is the game. Like this is this is it. This is the end all be all of war games. So, okay, I'm gonna take a break. <laughs> and that that's kind of like my jumping in thoughts of the game. So, have you guys heard of this game? Have you any, any thoughts about what I said? Like anything at all you want to yeah. you want to contribute? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I have heard of this game. It's a game that I heard about probably over a year ago, uh, from one of our fellow discord friends and I ended up looking it up and was like, oh my gosh, this game is incredibly expensive. And then I waited, <laughs> I waited like a year and a half and then I finally found someone selling it for comparable, comparably pennies to what it usually goes for and i just i jumped on it so i have a copy on my shelf i haven't gotten to break it out yet but i i would love to it just seems like there's just something about owning a game like that that has such such high standing in so many people's minds and seems to stand up to the critique uh and also seemingly does things in such a unique fashion even if there's a mechanic in it that maybe is not unique, which I don't even know that that could be levied at it. Like there's so much in it that is just legitimately like hasn't been done again or since or before. But even if that were not true, like the amalgamation of those things seemingly is able to create this experience that you can't really get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. But yeah, one thing that I was shocked by is the fact that it's, it's, it's entirely diceless, right? Like there is no, oh, yeah. 
dice to the to the combat and that is i mean that's unheard of in a in a war game because so much of the fog of war is made by dice in so many war games it's made by other things too like hidden units hidden activation card play there's all kinds of ways that fog of war is introduced in a in a war game but um in this it's it's obviously the hidden units um and then just the way that you choose to play the game but it seems seemingly like your choices are what truly drive what happens, you know? And so there's that double think and stuff like that. But I'm curious, um, how have you found like the texture of your, your three different plays? And also mm-hmm. from what I understand, there's a, no- it's a non-static setup, right? Like you can maybe change yes. your unit allocation and stuff. You at definitely the beginning? can. Yes. Yes. Well, I'll speak to the simpler bit there. It is a non-static setup, but for ease of play, uh, you know, just to get, get things going, there's, uh, somebody on Board Game Geek set up these three scenarios, so they're like preset. I think they're they're ideally modeling what how it was set up actually in history, uh, with some slight variations. Like it could be more heavily defended in the north or in the south or a mixed defense. So I've only used those, um, but you know I figured there is no way I would know where to put things, and I I kind of want I wanted some structure, some reasonable structure for setup as I was learning the game. So so far I've only played with those. Um, fixed scenarios don't remember i know i played the one with mixed defense and i don't remember the other two that i picked but in terms of the texture that evolved through the different plays the first play was just like a bunch of cavemen slinging armies at each other like that's that's what it felt like we didn't really know how to leverage the combat system um how i spoke effusively just now about how it actually works was not a realization I had in the first game, nor, nor did my opponent. We were playing it like a traditional war game, and we were wondering, you know, what's what's going on? What's what what's what what are we, what are we missing? Like, there's something here, and there's definitely written in the rules. Like, why would we do this? And it kind of happened towards the end of the game, when we really like decided, hey, let's let's experiment with it. Let's try it, even though we didn't think it was like that significant. The fainting thing, like, oh. The rule book just nonchalantly says you can faint. Doesn't explain why. <laughs> it doesn't explain what for. It doesn't explain really the ultimate reason for doing it. So we didn't really pay much attention to it. And then we started doing it and we executed it exactly by the rules set. And we we're like, oh, that is why. And 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 then the second the second game, we started doing that a lot more. And what we realized were was this is a game about calculated loss. Like it's, it's, it was amazing. Like you can, you can purposely, you know, accept defeat to pull them into a, a region where you can easily flank them the next turn. And like every move felt consequential. Um, I remember reading <clears throat> in Bowen Simmons design diary, her goal, her like statement or thesis for this game was uh, coming from what I understand it, Bonaparte at Marengo was like more like a chess-like, abstract-like board game. Uh, they wanted this to be, quote-unquote, less chess, more poker. Like, you kind of just play with your gut. You you are, the, you like, the game is a conduit of your feelings, of your motivations, your intentions, and it lets you do that. And that's the sense that I got from the game in game two, right? And And... Both in game two was was me and my wife. We we had already played, so we had a game under our belts, um, and so it felt hotly contested. 
Um, and we switched sides as well. So we got to see different things, the strengths of the different sides. And then in game three, I played with a new player. And although they were still kind of experimenting, I like they were trying something very specific and the game allowed them to do that. Like they tried this elaborate flanking maneuver and the game allowed them to do that. And honestly, they all they might have succeeded if they knew how to play the game a little bit more proficiently, but it was their first game. So I was just like, yes, that's the kind of thing I want to see in the game. Like I wanted to give you pure agency and like, again, less chess, more poker. Uh, so that's that's what I've witnessed. Uh, it just continues to shine for me. It it allows it allows you for, to put yourself into the game. Like you really feel like a commander. This sounds like kind of corny, but it really just feels like that, you know. And yeah, I mean, I love it. I, I I made the thought one night one time where I was like, okay, how do I go back to other war games after this? Like, how can I possibly go back? Yeah, I mean, I think some people would argue that you don't. Like, yeah. that's some of the opinion I hear on that game, which is kind of difficult. But that. I would also say, though, that a lot of times people are wanting to go to war games for the setting. And so there's still plenty, probably yeah, plenty sure. of reason to, you know, sure. play other war games if you don't want to be in a Napoleonic era, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, that sounds awesome. Super emergent. Uh, I don't know if Chris had anything to maybe pitch in there, but. I do, actually. Uh, one thing RJ said uh, prompted a question I had for him. RJ, you mentioned during your first player two of Nap Napoleon's Triumph. You were playing it more as a conventional war game, and it wasn't quite clicking for you. Um, I am not a war gamer, I'm not a genre I'm familiar with. Um, I was wondering, since your enthusiasm, you know, sparked some interest for me in uh, kind of investigating this game a little bit further, even though it's out of print. Um, do you think, as someone who is not familiar with the genre conventions of war gaming? Is this a game I could still appreciate, or should I start with something a little more traditional? I hear uh, Saki Gahara is often named as a good entry point to block war games. Should I familiarize myself more with games of this ilk first, or is this something I could maybe dive into? Um, uh, well, this is only one person's word uh, of course. that you're taking. I, I think... Oh, you know, you know, your your question sort of jogged um, a memory of my experience learning the game, and it was that it was kind of hard, um, in the sense that I had too much of traditional war game tenets to anchor myself to, that I kind of like had to shed them off, and it, it made it difficult to internalize a lot of the the combat nuance and the rules. It, because I, I did say the combat, the way I described the combat, it's because the combat. Is, is is very explicitly designed and it's it's i don't want to say complex but it's just very explicit like there's very specific bits about it that you just have to had to have to know and they go against a lot of convention so if you want if you know you being a novice in war games if you just want pure ease of learning and onboarding yeah it would i would totally 100 like recommend this um because i don't I think it's easier to go from Napoleon's Triumph to other war games than the other way around. Like Napoleon's Triumph flips everything on its head. Other war games kind of make sense in the same way area control games make sense or abstracts make sense. Like the better, like the larger, the stronger we win. And the, the there's no nuances, not necessarily, not really, not 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 to not to movements, but um, 
like strength is a very big factor, at least from my limited war game experience, right? Not counting coin. I don't think it's quite like that in coin, but I'm talking hex encounter or block war games. You want to amass your strength and you commit and hopefully you overwhelm them. It's not like that in this. Uh, and so it could be a little bit easier for you, the, the green to war games person, to just jump right into Napoleon's Triumph without any issue whatsoever. Um, I'm not trying to dissuade you from those other fantastic games. Sekigahara is is amazing, for example, but you you don't you don't see what you see in Napoleon's Triumph in those other games. Like this is like this is something. It's it's like a lifestyle game. This might be the go of war games, you know. Wow. Um, which I've High heard. <laughs> uh, I've heard critique for Sekigahara. Like it gets me after 10, 10, 20 games. Like I don't. I've never heard that about Napoleon's Triumph. I can't possibly imagine that happening about Napoleon's Triumph. Like, so, well, yeah. Very, very interesting answer. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that, that maybe coming in as a blank slate may actually be somewhat desirable. Yeah, yeah. I think there's like, it seems, it seems, one thing, one last thing I will say at least is, you know, you're talking about amassing strength. And I think that's what puts me off of many uh, a Hex Encounter games because so much of it is lost in, these CRT charts, combat results tables where yeah. you're measuring, right? So you have, if I have this stack of units, they have this much strength. Each chit has that factor of strength on it. So you add that up. Then mm -hmm. you add the factors of strength of the defending stack. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, it's 13 to 5. Well, that's a, that's a two times ratio. So we're in this column of the CRT. If it was a one-to-one, -one, we'd be in this column. Oh, if mm -hmm. it was... Uh, two one in the defender's favor we'd be in this column and then you roll up yeah. and then whatever you roll that's your damage with obviously if you the more strength that you have versus your opponent the less of a good roll you need to inflict yep. more wounds and so like mm -hmm. that repeat that ad nauseum you have a lot of hex encounter games now do a lot of the hex encounter games do something new or unique i'm sure that they do uh, but seemingly this game does the whole you can overwhelm like you you can you can overwhelm sure still probably but you can also like you were saying just pick off these units with uh you know smaller smaller units and stuff like that these mm -hmm. bigger sets of units and so I to be fair though I to to both games you know both types of games both Napoleon's Triumph and other you know war games is the further back you go i guess probably the more likely that is to be able to happen you know something oh yeah, yeah. akin to that where you're not dealing with modern tech or um yeah, for sure you know great greater firearms and things like that but that's that's what's great is it's set in this kind of napoleonic sandbox where stuff like that did did happen and it's also communicating something about you know the commanders in that one being napoleon which is like he would do things like this sometimes. exactly so like, that's exactly. really cool especially if you're engaging with the history it's it's giving you that but mm -hmm. that's super exciting i hope that you get more plays of that in and i hope yeah. to i get hope a you play both of that in as well yes likewise yeah, likewise check that out all right uh chris you wanted to talk about brass lancashire hit us up man let's let's hear it yeah i certainly did so yes brass lancashire the uh, remade version of arguably Martin Wallace's most well-known game, uh, the 2007 Brass, um, the the new version put out by Roxley Games. I have been playing Lancashire recently, uh, got three plays under my belt, and I'm approaching this game from the perspective of someone who started with Brass Birmingham, its sister game. 
um, which is maybe the reverse order many people uh, have encountered these games in since Birmingham was the the far more recently debuted game. Yeah, uh, over the past two years or so, my game group, big fans of Birmingham. We've played it about 10 times or so. And I just wanted to um, kind of uh, share on the podcast some of my observations of what transitioning to the original Lancashire has been like. Um, some of the highlights, some of the differences, and maybe suss out why I think I'm coming to prefer Lancashire over Birmingham. It's a, it's not a night and day difference or anything. These are both games I'm happy to play. Um, they're they're basically the same system, just with some tweaks. Yeah. Um, Funny stories occurred during my most recent play of Brass Lancashire, um, one of which has to do in this um, game set during uh, England's Industrial Revolution. Uh, players are, you know, uh, spending resources to build up various industries around a shared board, um, manage the resources, and hopefully score the most points by the end of the game. And uh, one uh, two of the game's primary resources are uh, coal and iron, uh, very important during that time period. One rule in the system is uh, the overbuilding rule. Um, this is a a kind of an edge case where if the board is ever completely depleted of either coal or iron, a pretty unique circumstance opens up, and suddenly any player is eligible to basically destroy another player's um, constructed coal mine or ironworks building that they constructed previously. Um, Just wipe it off the board, replace it with your own, which uh, for this style of resource management Euro game is quite an aggressive action. It's kind of unheard of in the genre to directly attack someone else's infrastructure and remove it. Uh, replacing it with your own. And yeah, I've I've played Birmingham a whole bunch and I knew this overbuilding rule existed and it never entered play. It was never a factor during my games of Birmingham. Um, I figured, oh, this is probably just included in the rule set as this weird edge case in case the game starts to stall or something and all resources are gone and players are having a hard time introducing more to the board state. That's probably the reason this was included, right? And suddenly, flash, jump forward to Brass Lancashire. In our recent plays, overbuilding iron in particular has been happening all the time. And it, it kind of shocked me. Um, suddenly, it is far more possible to achieve in Lancashire versus Birmingham, primarily because there is a shared resource market which is far shallower in Lancashire, meaning uh, a resource like coal or iron can get depleted much faster, um, opening up these opportunities to overbuild and attack each other's infrastructure. Um, And the the funny moment that happened in my most recent game was I brought in one of my good friends, one of my regular players that I um, game with, and this was his first time playing Lancashire. He he was just like me. He was a Birmingham player. And I was noticing, you know, the iron market was starting to look pretty sparse. I think there were two iron cubes left. And I just announced a friendly reminder. Hey, um, overbuilding is still a thing. 
just keep that in mind because that might come into play at some point during this game. And on as I literally as I introduced that reminder, it was his turn, and he said, "Oh, <laughs> you know what? I think I'm going to spend my first action developing." away those two iron and yeah. then i'm going to overbuild your co- your iron chris <laughs> oh, man. i completely caught me off guard i didn't realize it was going to be immediately relevant as soon as i mentioned it but i loved that interaction um especially because the the same location he overbuilt me on later in the game the third player re-overbuilt him on the same place was like this hotbed of just things getting torn down. That was w- the first main difference I wanted to highlight, but I'll open it up to you two. Do you feel like that introduced some almost like brinksmanship into the game in the sense of like playing with fire with the iron or coal market being kind of uh, added, you know, there not being much left in the market, like that almost creates like you're not wanting to be the person who puts it down to one or two so that the next person is the one who overbuilds you? Like, did you feel that in the design? I absolutely felt that. Brinksmanship is the word that comes to mind, um, which was just really not a consideration during my place at Birmingham. It's almost a game of chicken, waiting to see who will push their luck to you know, deplete the the uh, supply of iron just like a little push it too far because there's um, which suddenly opens up these new opportunities to uh, really stick it to another player, um, which is an interaction I I get a kick out of just speaking personally. Yeah, I I want to say well, first of all, the brinksmanship part is a very strong component of brass, and I think it's one of the things that it does very well. Like it, without any extra rules overhead it it just says whatever you build can be immediately used it gives you some points but it will give them some ability to get more points when they use your resources like that's just inherent to the game it's probably what drew me to the game the best and then the hand hand management sort of second because that's also very tight and compelling uh but i'll be honest with you i didn't uh, we must be really slow players but i haven't seen hardly any overbuilding in our game because correct me if i'm wrong you need the entire board to be devoid of those resources, right? Not That's just the correct. market. And you guys yeah. just consume them all to get, to get to that state, which is, you know, that's crazy. Like you guys must be, you know, very, very, well, you have like what, 10 plays you said of Birmingham, right? Of Birmingham. Yeah. Now, all the same players. So I don't, I can't say I've had that luxury of playing with such seasoned players. So maybe that's a product of that experience as well. Yeah, over time, we've become very bullish on the develop action, which leads to a lot of iron leaving the board, Mm. um, which produced in our most recent game, three overbuilds all in the same game. It was it was crazy. Yeah. And this was just one of the three games that you saw any overbuilding or just like that much overbuilding. Um, that's right. I have seen overbuilding happen zero times in my place of Birmingham, and it okay. has o- occurred at least once in all three in of my game. Lancashire plays. Wow. Okay. How did you feel about the uh, distant cotton market? I know for some people that's a weird sticking point. I, I I already know. Like, I already have my thoughts of why I don't think it's a it's not a problem, and actually maybe adds to Lancashire. But I'm curious what you would say to that or what you liked or didn't like about that. 
Yes, um, it certainly fulfills the same. There is an analogous mechanism in Birmingham where the first person to sell to one of the markets gets a little bonus, um, which is incentivizing you to maybe try to sell something a little earlier than you might ordinarily want to. Um, and the, the distant cotton market is kind of the the Russian roulette version of the same incentive, but in Lancashire, where uh, you want uh, a player might be incentivized to try to quickly sell some of their cotton mills they produced to the distant market to get a nice income bonus bump. Um, but, you know, that starts this ticking timer where eventually the the distant market will be oversaturated with goods and will then be closed for the that that era of the game um and it's it's determined randomly uh where you don't know exactly when the distant cotton market will be oversaturated uh based on like a card flip uh the, the that bit of randomness feels maybe just a little bit out of place in this kind of of a, of a heavy euro but I, I wasn't offended by its inclusion or anything. Um, it's just a calculated risk, and I find it a little bit exciting. Um, so yeah, no <laughs> no qualms for me about it. First of all, I think it's very thematic, um, which is not common in a game like this. And so anytime that I see a legitimately thematic integration of a mechanic in a Euro game, I I don't like to turn my nose up at that. Now, whether or not someone cares about that is a whole different story. I kind of like it. I think even like the, a lot of the other elements of the game are even uh, more tied to the theme than than your average Euro game for sure. And so, like it's simulating the chaos of selling something that far away from home. Um, and so, like clearly, when you export a good like that, you have no, especially in that era where everything's you know going by boat still like all that like it's that's a dangerous game and so you have to weigh that and there's there's some inherent lack of control that's going to be involved in selling your wares like that um so like from that angle it definitely doesn't bother me and also from my limited plays of lancashire that is Ultimately, you probably don't want to primarily be selling to the distant cotton market. You want to be selling to ports. And so, like, that's not, it's not even the primary way that you're interacting with selling goods, from what I remember. It's something that, like, if you can, it can have some really good yields to do distant cotton market, but primarily your, your, your main way of exporting that or, or getting that sold is going to be through port tiles, which become, a cool wrinkle in Lancashire that's not present in um, Brass, Birmingham, mm -hmm. for example. So that's kind of where I fell on it. Good uh, observations. And Chris, I wanted I wanted to ask you, since um, you had such extensive experience with Birmingham, then leading into Lancashire, which, like you said, is a not not typical. Um, do did you find, and and if so, how like your her heuristics that you developed for Birmingham change at all uh, when you were going to Lancashire or are they generally safe to say like the same like everything that you relied on in the past seemed to be working fine in, in Lancashire that's an awesome question um, there is one immediate answer that comes to mind for me and that has to do with 
um, the dominance of the beer resource in Birmingham. Um, so in my plays, at least in my group's meta, we've developed a heuristic where you've got to spec into beer. Um, beer, the payoff, both in terms of the income beer provides and the points, and the fact that it is required to do the double rail action during the second era of the game when you're constructing uh, train tracks, those three uh, variables all come together to make um, beer almost a, necessi- a necessity, a necessary component of your strategy if you want to perform well. Um, and then obviously transitioning to Lancashire, where beer is doesn't exist, um, that changes things quite a bit. Yeah, my Birmingham heuristic is almost just to build as much beer as possible and then use it, consume my own beer during the rail era to do the double track lay as much as possible. Um, we found that to be uh, maybe a lazy strategy, but an effective one during Birmingham. And that is just thrown out the window during Lancashire uh, because, well, there isn't any beer to, to do that with. Um, so that has shaken up our group's meta. Um, Lancashire, without that kind of consistent as- assumption during play, feels like a little bit more of a dynamic game where, you know, you might need to zig or zag a little bit more based uh, based on which industries you choose to invest in, um, which you need to be watching the other players a little bit more closely, maybe avoid stiff competition if two players have already indicated they are going down the cotton mill route maybe you steer steer clear of cotton for this game and try to find a niche somewhere else where birmingham i feel um since beer was consumed so rapidly with the rail construction i feel like everyone could safely spec into beer during a play of birmingham where um, competition seems a little bit more fierce in Lancashire. And that's my main answer, but great question. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I hope to get some more plays of even Brass Lancashire in. I love, I love it when the three, you know, the games that we're bringing to each episode, it's like, yep, want to play that. <laughs> like that's probably bodes well for the types of games that we're mentioning on here and hopefully we'll continue to mention. But I think that... That's a good place to stop with kind of the games we've been playing because what we really wanted to get into with you all was a discussion on discovery versus mastery. These are words that, at least for me, I hear a lot in the hobby in various ways. And it's really interesting to kind of dive into a topic like this with some loaded terms and so, yeah, we just want to transition into kind of a discussion about that and see see where this goes. So first things first, I think it's important that we kind of define some terms here so that we're all kind of operating from a similar uh, kind of foundation, if you will. But what was funny is in, in that process, as we were kind of preparing for this episode and asking ourselves what these words mean in the context of this conversation and what we want to talk about, it seemed like there was kind of two schools of thought that came into play, or at least maybe not a school of thought so much as a way of thinking of the term. And so I just want to throw it to you, RJ, first to kind of describe what it is that you kind of were thinking at first when you heard these words, and then we'll throw it to to, uh, to Chris afterwards and kind of 
how he was thinking of these things. And just as a quick kind of comparison of how one can even think about what discovery versus mastery. Yeah, absolutely. So my perspective when I, when I immediately read this was like sort of the topic that we were considering, um, it mainly had to do with the extent to which you were going to devote yourself to understanding a game, right? So from my point of view, discovery was the act of, and this is, of course, everything is in the context of board games. Discovery was the act of playing or replaying a game for the purpose of trying different things. Uh, and so, you know, one get, you, you'll play it once, you'll see all that it has to offer. You've tried one path. Next game, you'll try another path just to, just to see what happens. And the following game, you'll, you'll try a different path and you'll try to exhaust all the paths set before you. Um, that, that might be very obvious and maybe you'll uncover as you play more, but that's kind of the mentality. It's this experimental mentality. And then in contrast, in my mind, mastery of a game is, I mean, to put it short, figuring out which of those paths is best and finding out how to execute that path, that path in the best way possible so that you maximize your chances of success in that game, right? And, uh, and that you succeed more than you fail um, after you have learned how to become most efficient at said best path or paths, let's say, um, and really understanding what happens if you have to diverge from that path. Yeah, for sure. And then, Chris, what, what kind of came to mind for you when you thought about these two terms? Sure. Yeah. I could definitely see, since these are both words that exist in the English language and they have a variety of connotations, uh, I'm not saying RJ's interpretation is incorrect or anything, but I just, my head went in a different direction, which was um, kind of what kind of a player, um, what kind of a player do I want to be when I engage with the board gaming hobby? Um, Do I want to be someone who's constantly discovering new games and acquiring a very like broad understanding of the mechanics that exist out there and um, having like a very achieving a better understanding of my taste by seeing what even exists in the hobby at large or do I want to be a player who's kind of um, trying to master a a smaller subset of games, um, continuously returning to old favorites time and time again to improve my play, figure out um, hidden depths depths of the game that may have been opaque at first, and ultimately um, gain a deeper appreciation of some of my favorite games. That was kind of the dichotomy that came to mind for me. The broad player or the the deep player. Which I love that you use those terms because I think for me, I, I definitely align. This is not a picking sides thing, but in terms of how one thinks about these things, I found myself thinking about them more in terms, in the terms that you did, Chris, which was that dichotomy of breadth versus depth. And I just recently, I was mentioning this before we started the show, but I recently read one of Cordy Martin a pretty commonly known BGG user at one of his blog posts, which was discussing the breadth gamer versus the depth gamer. And so that is really where my mind goes when I hear discovering, you know, discovery versus mastery discovery, almost explicitly being, Ooh, I'm going to play this game 
and then I'm going to play this game, and then I'm going to play this game. I might even only play each one of them once or a couple times because there's an inherent enjoyment for that type of gamer in just seeing the different mechanics at play, different themes, and for some of them, even just learning a rule set, coming to grips with that initial system. That's where the most excitement is for them rather than continuing to play a game they already know. And so that's kind of where my mind went. But it's really interesting to see how people can interpret these terms. And and what's funny is even with the way it kind of hit RJ, that's also an interesting conversation too. And I think partially we might even get into some of those things as we continue to talk about this. Um, even that process of like, yeah, discovering being just replaying a game and learning new things about it rather than mastery being just drilling down on the things you know are good and trying to possibly be more competitive even or mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah, I think, but just to give ourselves kind of a footing here, uh, we'll kind of proceed with the idea that the discovery versus mastery is kind of the, the second set of terms, which is kind of jumping around, discovery being jumping around to several different games, mastery being kind of drilling down on one. But I was curious, under that guise, um, or guise is maybe not the right word, but under that kind of uh, definition, where do we feel that we personally fall? Like, are, are you more on the side of wanting to, you know, be on the side of mastery, being being interested in just deep diving on on you know, um, most of your favorites, um, or is discovery still something that entices you? I suppose with the name of the podcast and, and, you know, me knowing you all, I kind of, I kind of know, know this answer, but I'm curious, like to what degree discovery still plays a part in your, you know, role in the hobby. I definitely visualize this topic as a spectrum. Um, and I think we can all agree that, Existing on either extreme end of the spectrum is probably not the ideal way to go about it. Um, Constantly trying new game after new game and being forced to move on to something new, even if you loved something, that sounds miserable. But similarly, uh, just committing to the first game that comes your way and never trying anything else, um, equally unappealing to me. So uh, probably the most... Um, compelling or engaging way to interact with the board game hobby is somewhere in the middle. Um, but what's the interesting thing to unravel with this conversation topic is where is that ratio for you? Or is there even like a most desirable ratio um, between discovery and mastery generally? I, I don't know. Probably not. It probably is a case-by-case bit, uh, basis depending on the individual. Um, but... Um, I think maybe surprising you too. I think I am probably close to the middle. Um, I think there's a lot of advantages to um, both approaches um, because, you know, all of your favorite games were at one point new to you. So discovery and seeing what out what is out there and trying to refine your taste is an important part of the process. Maybe as you mature in the hobby and as the years go by, maybe the discovery component becomes less of a factor as you figure out, okay, this is the handful of games I really want to continue playing. Um, But um, to completely ignore um, the discovery part, I think would be um, misguided 
Um, but that those are my initial thoughts, and I, I can elaborate further later on. But RJ, I'm curious where you think you might land. Well, see, I thought I knew where I landed, but then you started you started talking about sensible things, and <laughs> and uh, now I'm now I'm questioning myself. So thanks. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you make a good point because I was a well, no, it's that's 100, percent and this is I, I was in line with your. Um, proposal that this is a spectrum. It's definitely a spectrum, and I think it has strongly it's strongly correlated with where you are in understanding this hobby. Um, because definite, I was a definite discovery type. I wanted to try all the new types of games, gamer, at first, um, and there was a lot of merit to that, and it got me to the types of taste that I like now. So I can't completely eschew discovery as far as where i lie now i i thought i was heavily into mastery but when you say middle um maybe i'm also in the middle but it's very hard for me to try something new unless i see something completely innovative or weird or wacky in it like that's explicitly where my discovery sort of tastes lie um and I'm willing to make more of an exception for genres that I know I like um, because I just kind of want to see what is being done. For example, in in the train game genres like Cube Rails or 18xx. However, what I'm finding, and it's sort of me, why I'm leaning more towards mastery, is it's like iterations on the things that I like just aren't as good as the originals. And I just I just miss the originals more and and it just makes me want to go back to them, you know. So it takes a, it takes something really special for me to attempt to like just deviate and really go for it. And but otherwise, yeah, I'm, I lean towards mastery because uh, the games that I like allow for that type of depth and that like that depth exploration that Thomas was ex- was alluding to, and it it it's rewarding for me to do that now at this point in my gaming journey rather than it is rewarding for me to discover new ways things are being you know implemented in in games so that's where that's where i land how about you thomas what are your thoughts on this yeah i've kind of been noting down some thoughts kind of live here but for me i also i don't think i'll say anything novel here and say that i also think i kind of fall in the middle i I really have no interest in mastering a single game I do have interest in diving into a game more than the first initial plays. Like with something like Pax Renaissance, which I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm planning on playing that game hundreds more times. Like I I don't see the, um, the, the light is not anywhere near me. I'm nowhere near the end of the tunnel. And so for me, there's still plenty to explore in that game. And that's why the initial, the way, the way, the first definition that we gave, I think, is actually arguably could be more compelling, which is that that process of discovering just within within a single game, like how how much discovery do you want within just your favorites? Um, but you know, I won't kind of go down that that rabbit hole right now. But um, for me, it's like I I think the reason I wouldn't have been able to maybe articulate this at one time is I would so clearly associate discovery with acquisition and so like necessarily when 
I would if I would would have said that I'm like more on the discovery side, like it'd be like, well, am I always going to be acquiring games? And 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 in my mind, like ideally, I don't want to be like at some point I want to slow my acquisition to if not a complete halt uh definitely not a complete halt but like very few games per year like and i'm even talking like trades and stuff like that like i want i want every game on my shelf to be you know uh, at least to my temporal self a, an all-timer you know and uh something that i could see playing a lot and what's funny is i think maybe mostly it's just an ideal like maybe it's not something i'll ever fully realize but it's like even with games that i know that i wouldn't even play to their potential the fact that they have the potential is what's important to me like if i play a game and i'm like i feel like if i played this another four times i would be done with it then i don't even actually want to go through with those four times like i relate to if, that, I, yeah. if i 100 yeah like if i if I think that a game has five plays, I don't want to do the five plays. A game has to have some arbitrary amount of, you know, 50-ish plus plays for me to think of it as a worthwhile thing. Even if with the one that I could only play for five plays, even if I wouldn't have actually done that, it doesn't matter. It's it's that the the theoretical potential isn't there, which is so funny. Like, I don't know that that makes any rational sense, but it's definitely <laughs> how I think about this you know i don't know that's just a little bit of a jumping off point there but i think that's a product of just knowing yourself as a gamer and playing so many games you kind of got have a sense of what you can extract from a game like i think we can all agree on that after a certain point you get a better sense of what you can extract from a game if you've played or seen other games like it uh, it's harder to see with those deeper games but you you get a sense like hey, this is like a two three plays and I'm done type game like I've seen what it could offer, possibly seen like you can kind of visualize the heights you could reach and you're like is that worth digging into figuring out how to get there faster or get there quicker when it's kind of like the same path getting there probably not um, so I I completely agree with you that's that's something that you kind of just have an inkling for after after playing so much you know what i mean you reach a point of diminishing returns as well like mm -hmm. this happens in all facets of life and i'm speaking as someone who doesn't have a lot of life experience being you kind of a a youngin in the hobby and just generally but like i've found it even in other hobbies that i've gotten into where it's like you eventually hit this wall where it's like any more added effort would not be rewarded with a better experience. Any more added investment would not be met with a better experience. And so everyone finds that point at a different place and time. I feel like I found it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just, just strictly the math of the thing, like the numbers of it all. Like if I look at my shelf, I have 130 games right now. About 30 of them I'm actively looking to get rid of. All right, the other 100, right, if I played each of them once per year, you know, like, let's just break <laughs> down the math here. It right. becomes something where it's like, there's this ideal in my mind that I want to be playing most of the games on my shelf five plus times a year. Some of them I want to play 10 plus times. Some of them I want to play 20 plus times. And so when you get into the strict math of it all and you kind of break it down in those terms, 
it's like, yeah, I don't like, I think I'm, why, why am I, why am I acquiring new things? Why am I wanting to discover these other things? But the thing is like, I have untapped discovery just even on my shelf. So like, that's why I think for me, I have, I've had to decouple discovery does not equal acquisition necessarily mm -hmm. discovery mm -hmm. could even mean, and definitely does mean just playing what I already have on my shelf within the first definition, but also just playing what I don't, I haven't played before on my shelf, which is effectively, I mean, it's a new game to me, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I feel like you've tapped into something with like games that are slightly, that are derivative and all games are derivative in some fashion. They're, they're amalgamations of the games that came before them and, and all, all things like that. But if a game isn't doing something like meaningfully new or, novel or creating an interesting decision space then you know i don't have a ton of interest in it and it's hard to invest the time when you're not convinced that the return is going to be there right the return on that investment of time and so once again i find myself wary sometimes of breaking out that new game when i could just break out you know the great zimbabwe again with my group or you know, 1830 or, mm -hmm. you know, like the, the list goes on. Yeah. Uh, to riff on one topic you were uh, discussing, there was a single, like a single sentence Reddit post I read one time that uh, noticeably cut down on the quantity of my acquisitions. As soon as I read that every new game you add to your collection means you'll play your favorites less often. That struck a chord with me, um, just by the by the numbers game you were you were dis, uh, discussing, Thomas. Just the way the math works, and I wanted to. So I said, I'm. I think I consider myself to be somewhere in the middle between discovery and mastery, especially the past year and a half, two years. I think I've been in a discovery mode, which has yielded uh, some great discoveries for me. Like I. I found out about Splatter and train games and uh, dove more thoroughly into Kinesia's backlog. And I'm so appreciative that I did these. I tried these new games that were, maybe they're not new releases, but they were definitely new to me. Um, so that's the same thing. Um, but the reason, so yeah, I'm definitely a fan of the discovery component, but I'm considering myself to be kind of an aspiring mastery player going forward, or at least I want to trend in that direction. And some of the reasons behind uh, this kind of uh, change of heart, you could call it, is that, at least for me anyway, the main draw of a good board gaming session is to be presented with interesting decisions. Um, and I think uh, taking a more deep dive approach could uh, be helpful to uh, fostering that goal of mine. The reason being is that if I'm constantly trying new games and learning new rule sets and bouncing from one thing to the other, I'm only ever really kind of just pulling levers and engaging with decision-making on a surface level. Um, Instead of making, you know, more deliberate and considered decisions that would only come through repeat plays. So um, that's where I think um, diving deeper on a smaller number of games can yield 
like a more compelling, interesting decisions um, during the gameplay. And that's something I want to chase. And, uh, but as a, as a, uh, a devil's advocate point, I wanted to bring up and I want to get, I want you to, you two to tell me if I'm being crazy here or not, but um, counterpoint, if I'm chasing interesting decisions in the games I play, if that's the main appeal to me, I'm curious if you can go too far in the mastery direction. Um, if you reach a point where um, it's a game you're so familiar with that the decisions, they start to border on being you know, obvious to you. Or like, of course, this is how I'm going to play. It's worked for me dozens of times in the past. That outcome would also be undesirable for me. It's the other extreme where um, on the one hand, on the one extreme, you're just pulling levers, seeing what happens. On the other hand, games almost become rote and repetitive because you've played them so many times. Um, I don't think I want to fall into either camp, but uh, what do you what do you two think about that? I think that that is a very good point. And I, I think <laughs> it's so funny. As we've been talking... I'm becoming more and more compelled by the framing of this discussion with the first set of definitions. Thank you. <laughs> um, because I, I think it's actually a more interesting discussion, which is because I, I actually think it's probably where more people would resonate. It's probably what more people would resonate with, which is, yeah, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in competition, actually. Like, I'm interested in competing but not in competition. I don't know if there's a difference there, but I feel like there is. And it's like, I want to do well and I want to try my best and I want to make good decisions. And, you know, there's, I want to be enveloped in that decision space and maneuver it well, but I'm not interested in like competition in and of itself in the sense that like when we're all at a certain level, just doing all the optimal things that we've come to know in a game, that is a lot less interesting to me. And so I think like, you're absolutely right. If I reach that point with a game where I'm not making any any interest, like it doesn't even have to be big, right? It, let's say I've played my hundredth game of Pax Ren, and like I have a game where it's like, yeah, nothing really new there, but I did something small, right? This little sequence was different, or I don't think it has to be massive. It doesn't have to be revolutionary. I don't expect that of a game. Like Tigers and Euphrates is a game I want to play a bunch more. I don't expect revolutionary moments past like the 25th play or something but i do expect little moments of like spatial considerations becoming you know novel board states that that's maybe what it is for me is the game still presenting me with like a novel board state am i having to figure out this one puzzle for the first time a little bit even if i've seen some of its parts is this exact composition of it something new like how long a game can do that for is obviously very dependent on the game. But yeah, I'm this is me. May, I'm maybe being overly verbose here, but I like, I am not interested in that situation you brought up, which is like, we're all just kind of in that optimal space for however much we can evaluate that. And we're just kind of going through the motions and have this rote decision space. Super not interested in that, but I'm very interested in that golden area of, we're not coming to grips with the system anymore, like in terms of rules. We know what's going on. We know the levers of inter we know the levers. We know the axes of interaction. But now it's about evaluating board states and making good decisions and things like that and being presented with those things. Well, 
now that you mentioned that, Chris, I, I kind of speaking, I, there's a little pushback for me because I think there is some value in getting to that point, but it has less to do with your preference of mastery versus discovery and more to do with the merits of the game, right? If you ever get to that point with a game, if you genuinely got to that point with a game, you have, in my mind, exhausted as much value as you could out of it. Hopefully it was rewarding um, that it like really got to that point. And not all games allow that, but if it if it wasn't rewarding, or if it was a very brief journey to get there, you've just you've just identified a game you don't need anymore. But you would never uh, see that necessarily unless you're actively trying to master it, right? You won't ever see the ceiling unless you're trying that. But if if you find those games that seemingly have no ceiling, um. Like you, you keep grasping at straws, and you keep discovering new things at your 80th, your 100th, your 150th play. Those are the keepers, which again you won't discover unless you have mastery. So you were talking about Tigris and Euphrates, Thomas, and you aspire to play that a lot. That game has never exhausted its appeal to me, and I've played it. That's got to be getting into 100 now, 100 plays now. Thank you to the online implementation, but. You, I just keep seeing new things. Like this last game I'm playing, I have been pushed out of every area that I originally had a foothold in, and now I'm just kind of playing guerrilla warfare and like sort of playing the treasury scoop-up game with my single green guy. And I've never really done anything quite like this before, and it's kind of it's kind of working. So another value of mastery is like figuring out how to get out of these weird positions or bizarre positions and, and still trying to win. So I said there was a little pushback, but I, I feel my, my pushback to that is I do think there's extreme appeal to me getting to this point where everyone is uber familiar with how to play the game well and knows the correct plays because you, if the game, again, back to the merits of the game, if the game allows it, it'll like unlock this new level this new layer to the game that you might not have seen before. Um, and you just keep like get, kind of breaching this next ceiling. And I see that in the great games. Like I see that in great Zimbabwe. Uh, I see that in Tigris and Euphrates. Um, you see that in, in Go, right? These seemingly limitless games. And that only comes from people genuinely knowing or being at that high, high level of, of, of skill and, and trying to do the, you know, the best thing, but also, knowing when not to do the best thing and when to deviate. And again, you don't get to that point unless you devote yourself to a game. Everything you're saying, RJ, is 100% resonating with me. Yeah, it, it does speak to the strength of the game's design, um, whether it's realistic for a person to even be able to master it. Um, that's why all the time I've been investing into Go lately has mm -hmm. been, I'm so confident that it is time well spent because I am certain that there will never come a day where uh, I have mastered Go, where the moves are all obvious to me. I don't think a human lifetime is probably long enough for that to be achieved. And yeah, it's just a matter of, of finding which games out there have that limitless ceiling, be it the Go's or the Tigris and Euphrates of the world. And yeah, those are the games... I hope to spend the most time with. Uh, and just to put it succinctly, I am 100% interested in the pursuit of mastery, 
But yeah, reaching the the destination of mastering a game isn't something I particularly care about. It's just, you know, getting a a deeper understanding, um, uh, being surprised by those novel board states like Thomas mentioned. That's, That's a real treat in board gaming for me to return to a familiar game and have it surprise you time and time again because it's just that dynamic of a system. Um, and that those are the kind of um, things I feel you can only appreciate when you do dive deep on a game. It's funny because I I, I think the game kind of has to obfuscate some things for me to keep me on that trail. Like if I ever feel like I'm almost practicing when I'm playing a game or like I don't really know how to articulate this, but like. If it feels, if it's starting to feel like work, even if I know that there's things to discover, if it's not maybe exciting or if it's not novel enough or I'm not getting enough of that feedback, even if I have suspicions that it's there, it sometimes won't matter. And I won't like that is something I'm not interested in pushing through. Like uh, the game has to somehow be presenting me with novel things as i'm going um even if even if i had this knowledge that working through these like five or so plays whatever arbitrary number where i don't really feel like i'm gaining much even if i knew i was going to hit kind of a a wall and then break through it i still need something in those five games kind of to like push me and excite me to do that and i think that lies more in like in that that discovery aspect, which is kind of interesting. So I don't know if I articulated yeah. that very well, but no, that makes a lot of sense. And it, if, if, yeah, if you, if nothing is hooking you in those initial plays, you won't be compelled to go further. Um, but it's like, well, even not even just like the initial plays, but I mm-hmm. just mean like any, any set of five arbitrary number here, but any set of X number of plays in my journey with a game, Right, even if that those five plays are coming between the fifteenth and twentieth, I still need something exciting or little breadcrumbs leading me to you know uh, new new pastures or whatever. But like, yeah, there's games in my life that are like theoretically limitless in the sense of my own ability to experience them. Like, and there's also like there's definitely degrees of subtlety here. Like, I think it's something like in eighteen thirty. For example, that's a really subtle game to me, but I have this knowledge that like, no, this is a little bit different and the little differences are going to have a big impact. And so like, yeah, mostly these are good bids on these privates in the river, in the, in the waterfall auction. And like, yeah, this is mostly what you might want to do when you have this seat as the person who has the PNO. And like, yeah, this is mostly what this this tile lay is probably good in this situation or this token or uh oh who's who's got priority this means you should probably do something akin to this like those things exist in that game but like it's in the minute details of turn order and who had the first bid did they pay five or ten dollars over face value you know like did this person sell at this point uh what exact order were the company started in did this tile lay happen in this OR at this time or in this OR at that time? That like these are very, to me at least, like kind of bitty things. But as you become more familiar with the game, seemingly 
those little moments are blown up in your mind to what their actual closer and closer to what their actual significance is. Maybe you never quite reach it a hundred percent, like your understanding of how significant that thing is, but the little things are put into greater relief in your mind. Whereas your first 20 plays of 1830, they may not have been. And so like, but I know people that have played 1830 like 300 times and it's like, (laughs) okay, either, either they just like, it's just something they do or like there's something there still, there's little things that they're still seeing, you know, there's something going on there that is compelling them to continue to play this game. And so like, then for me, who knows, like there's no way ever that I'm playing this 300 times. Cool. I know that in my hundred plays that I might be lucky enough to get over my lifetime that I'll have plenty that I'll still be discovering over those hundred plays. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think there's something to be said as well. You know, besides that, it is, and maybe I touched on this before, but getting enough plays to the point where you can be proficient at the game to enjoy it, which is your you know your bit about eighteen thirty. <laughs> you might you might just totally get trashed your first play and not know what happened to you and not give it a further chance and not get to those points. And I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I don't like, I, I don't like losing in games and I, I enjoy games greatly when I feel like I can be more proficient and particularly like win at them. So that's another, that's why I'm, I'm leaning more towards the competitive side of, of mastery because I, I mean, I want to win. I want to know how to win. I want to know, what apple how to react to you so that i can you know win in that situation and uh, and and see a lot of failures on the way there to get to that point like that just clicks with me um and it's why it's one of the reasons why i would keep coming back to a game to master it is if it feels like it's beyond me like if i can't quite grasp the game like i will come back and, and i like it i'll come back to it again and again until i you know get better at it so what are your thought what are your two thoughts on on that aspect of just that that competitive aspect where do you enjoy just do you not care but you'll still play the game if you you know aren't as consistently getting wins or getting better at it Good question. Um I guess that slightly ties into um maybe we haven't even necessarily defined what mastery means to each of us because I don't think I think you can master a game and still not win all the time. Um, some factors might be outside of your control, especially if there is a element of uh, negotiation or um, that comes into play where the best player might just be hamstrung by the table. But uh, put it, pushing that aside, um, I'm not the world's most competitive person. Um, don't get me wrong, I enjoy winning. But I would be frustrated if... A game I was attempting the master, I I was continuously losing time and time again. The losing itself wouldn't be an issue, but if I was failing to uh, notice improvements in my play, that would be a problem. If my if the lessons I take away from the game, the heuristics I'm trying to adapt and improve, uh, weren't yielding better results, um, that would lead to a source of frustration for me. For mostly. 
maybe that's even a sign of like a very deep, compelling, opaque game, but I'd be frustrated with myself for failing to improve um, because, yeah, a big appeal of mastery is the ever-evolving kind of experimental, uh, the, the scientific method of coming up with new hypotheses of what better play might look like and then applying it in real time and seeing what kind of results you get with an, with an experiment, with uh, a, any given play. Um, one ex- the, the game that comes to my mind as an example of this is my experience with Chicago Express over the past two years. This game, more than any other, I will finish a game, uh, have a explicit lesson I take away from it, where I see the the Wabash company uh, play a pivotal role. And then going into the next game, I will be thinking to myself, okay, it's all about a seating order of uh, w- when in the bid do you get to uh, try to get buy that first share of the Wabash. And then in that next game, the Wabash won't even enter play. And so the, the black company won't play a pivotal role. It'll be irrelevant. And then that heuristic gets thrown out the window. I started off thinking the red company in Chicago Express was the most valuable and then the least valuable and then back to the most valuable. Um, Chicago Express is one of my favorite games purely because of the w- the way it's forced me to change my heuristics as I have played it more and more. And that is, I think, a sign of a very compelling design. I get what you're saying. You want some amount of feedback each game. And so when I that was getting into what I was saying, I think a little bit of like, I need that breadcrumb. And that breadcrumb is feedback is, did what I do work? Did what they did work? Do I think I learned anything from that? What's good play? What's bad play? What did this teach? What did this play of the game show me? And when you mention like the scientific method, it would be incredibly frustrating if you put forth a hypothesis, you did the experimentation, you gathered your results, your data, you analyzed it, you came to your conclusion and your conclusion was, I have no conclusion. It's like, yes, that was, that's, an, that's a frustrating thing. Like if you didn't learn anything from that pro- procedure, then it was rather fruitless, you know, literally fruitless. And so like, I need to have learned something. It doesn't have to be big, it, but there's got to be something, a little kernel of something like, oh, I'm, I, that was, that was bad. You know, and that's why I like games that are a bit more punishing because seemingly the designer is interested in giving you more feedback by letting you be punished. Um, like when we're talking about like railroaded, you know, neuros, new euros, as I've just, I just learned that term on one of the guilds on BGG. <laughs> uh, but like, nice portmanteau. Some, Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes there's a lot of lack of feedback there because as I mentioned in our gaming taste episode, everything's like 4.5 to 8.6 points per game. You know, like this does like it's hard to delineate any one moment in a game so filled with things like that. And so you come to the end of it and you're like, I don't really know like that strategy seems good, I guess. Like, and you know, I don't want to be unfair because, like, my experience is actually very limited with a lot of you know New Year Euro games, and so I, I'm not actually going to try to speak from ignorance as much as I'd like to. But 
it feel my my impression is like games that allow for bigger swings in terms of big big moments and decisions or just like put a lot of agency in your hand are also the games that are going to give you at least are going to give me the feedback that I'm looking for like when I play something like Indonesia there's still a crap ton of opacity there don't get me wrong and I have no idea what I'm doing in that game <laughs> but like I have a better idea what I'm doing than I did two plays ago you know and like you see a bad bid on a merger you you start to realize the spatial considerations of the map you all of a sudden do a little bit of the math behind shipping and how that company that you're shipping with is way too parasitic you should not be shipping with like you're giving way too much money to another player or if you're the shipping player you need to put yourself in a position to do that to take as much money as you can like I, I, there's just a lot of moments in games like that where uh, I'm getting a little bit of that feedback and I'm I'm coming to the end of the game and I'm getting to have those post-game discussions and there's a lot to talk about. And that's like some of my favorite... That's my favorite game. My favorite games allow for that. And, and sometimes, weirdly, I find the post-game discussion and breakdown, if the people I'm playing with are willing, as enjoyable, if not sometimes more enjoyable than the game itself because we're like we're taking this thing that we made and we're like looking at it we're peering in and we're finding things in it and discussing decisions that were made at what point of time and what we learned and that breakdown is so inherently interesting to me and so i guess you could argue that that's on whether that's mastery or discovery like what what's play i think it's 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 discovering things about the game with the hopes of some level of mastery over elements of the game. And so I think for me, that's um, kind of where I'm at with that. I don't even know what that jumping point, jumping off point was, but that's just a, a thought. I have a quick uh, book recommendation. Just coincidentally, I was reading something that was very relevant to this discussion topic. Uh, so I'll just throw it in here. You can cut it if you want to thomas no worries but uh chapter two of algorithms to live by the computer science of human decisions by brian christian and tom griffiths a uh, chapter two is all about um exploring versus exploiting algorithms and how to apply what we know from computer science to making choices in your real life and it it's broadly applicable that it, it talks about but uh, the choice to try a new restaurant versus return to an old favorite or, you know, try a new board game versus uh, play Go yet again. And um, it had some pretty interesting insights based on, you know, programming and trying to suss out what the actual ideal ratio is, if that even exists. But yeah, it was very interesting reading. Yeah, I think I think that about does it. Honestly, that was a great discussion on discovery versus mastery. I I even was surprised kind of coming over to that first camp of thinking about those definitions in that way, more so in the terms of approaching a single game in different fashions. Obviously, with the podcast titled as this one is, and with what we've already talked about with our gaming tastes and already having a deep dive, I think for those listening, you kind of know the bent that we have, which is towards 
trying and wanting to experience games more deeply. So it makes sense to kind of have maybe those 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 first definitions um, rather than the second for us at least. But yeah, thank you all so much for listening. I'm so glad to be back on the mic. Hopefully uh, we can be back again soon. Um, not sure what the future holds in terms of topics or deep dives and things like that, but definitely be on the lookout. Uh, follow the podcast so that you can get notified when a new episode comes out so you can be listening to it when it comes out and join the discussion with us. And yeah, maybe even give us a rating if that is something that is possible on the platform that you listen on, like Apple Podcasts, for example. We'd love to see some more feedback, uh, written feedback on the show and see what I can improve, what we can improve, and just all manner of things because it's definitely still a thing with growing pains, to be sure. But yeah, that has been uh, episode three of the Analysis Paralysis Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and good night. Peace. Good night. A pleasure as always.